financial research, policy, and practice me. I am your host, Jonathan Ferguson. Our episodes contain interviews with researchers and discuss evidence-based strategies that policymakers and practitioners can implement to strengthen financial well-being for individuals at all stages of life. For this episode, we have an interview with Dr. Anita Mukherjee, an associate professor in the Department of Risk and Insurance at the Wisconsin School of Business at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Professor Mukherjee conducts research on public policy related to prisons and the opioid crisis, as well as household finance, retirement, and aging. Her research covers both the U.S. and emerging markets. She completed a Ph.D. in Applied Economics at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. She also holds an M.S. in Management Science and Engineering, a B.S. in Mathematics, and a B.A. in Economics, all from Stanford University. Prior to enrolling at Wharton, she spent two years working as a consultant at Oliver Wyman in the company's financial services arm in York. We will discuss her research project title, Set It and Forget It, Financing Retirement in an Age of Defaults. So thanks for joining us on the Financial Findings Podcast. It's great to have you and learn more about your research here today. So we'll jump in with the first question, which is what has been a financial aha moment in your life? And that can be something that you learned that has had a lasting impact on your financial behavior, situation, or wellness. This is a great question and something, you know, if you ask me on different days, I might give you different answers. Um, But but one thing that strikes me, uh, especially as I interact with a lot of graduate students now, is when I was a graduate student studying economics, um, one of the first things you learn is the life cycle hypothesis, um, which is that people seek to maintain roughly the same level of consumption over your life, which means that when you're younger, you take on debt. And when you're older, um, you might liquidate assets or uh, pay off that debt. And I think for me being young and learning about this, uh, you know, so much of what you hear is that debt is bad, borrowing is bad, and you should be scared to borrow. Um, But sort of looking through that theory and really appreciating what it implies is that when you're young, you do want to make a lot of investments in your maybe education, maybe in maybe even just in experiences uh, like travel, whatever. Um, And taking on debt is not necessarily a very bad thing. Um, And so that to me was actually quite an aha moment just because I think I had been so against debt. And I I wouldn't say I necessarily took it all to practice, but I think just appreciating that you should borrow and not be so scared of borrowing when you're young um, uh, was kind of an aha moment for me. Debt in our society, I think, comes with a lot of baggage one way or the other. Either, hey, I don't want any debt at all, or yeah, bring on the debt and I'm going to be over leveraged for a lot of different things. And so it's really interesting for each of us to find our own path to have a healthy use of and understanding of debt and how it can benefit us, but also some of the challenges that come with Absolutely, it. Absolutely. Yes. So definitely not going on saying everybody should pile on lots of debt, but, but I think exactly as you said, being conscious about ways in which you can use it to smooth out your um, you know, in the theoretical way, consumption over your lifetime. Um, but you really, we can think of it as smoothing out our joy from different things over the lifetime and investments in ourselves um, is a useful thing to think about. 
So yeah, thanks for that answer. So our next question, because we have some folks who are listening to this who maybe earlier on in their career and sometimes learn from our guests um, about their backgrounds. Could you tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Um, so I think I'd always been interested in policy and vulnerable populations. Um, so in college, uh, so I did my undergraduate studies at Stanford where I studied economics and math. I really liked the idea of policy and I realized because I also loved math, economics was a good way to marry those two interests. Um, I wasn't immediately interested in a PhD out of college. I actually worked in consulting for a couple of years, which was quite illuminating. I worked at Oliver Wyman Financial Services, which is based right in uh, Manhattan, New York, uh, for two years. But it was right around the financial crisis. So it was quite interesting to see sort of all the different um, evolution of the financial advice, the space I was in and consulting, but also kind of the whole financial sector. Um, and, and the experiences people had in their engagement with it um, around that time. So it was a very formative experience, I would say. And I think from my undergraduate times, I had done, you know, I'd always been interested in research. And so I thought, after, um, you know, after a couple of years of consulting, I had to decide whether to stay in consulting or, or maybe do something else. And around two years is the juncture at which many people sort of start to do other things. And so um, I uh, talked with a lot of my undergraduate advisors and friends and, and decided to go ahead and apply for a PhD in, in economics. And so I got into Wharton, um, they actually had a new applied economics program around that time. And so I, I joined it and my advisor there, Olivia Mitchell, um, she's still a professor there. Um, she uh, has done a lot of work in retirement and financial literacy. And so I think was very inspiring to me um, to follow some of that same path. And I think then did my dissertation on actually private prisons, so uh, financing of private prisons. So I was always interested in vulnerable populations, but not always specifically in household finance. Um, and then more recently kind of got connected, uh, you know, thinking about sort of what vulnerable populations care and think about, right? We're very connected to the legal system, and that can be things like criminal justice. And so some of my work is in that space, but a lot of my work is also in uh, household finance, like how to manage and deal with complex for example, financial accounts or navigating healthcare systems, things like that. Uh, I've been here at Wisconsin. This is my first job. So I graduated from my PhD and, and came here and I've been here now for nearly a decade. Um, and I've been sort of puttering along these different streams of research, which um, I have really enjoyed. So the next question is, what motivated you to complete this research, the piece we're talking about? Yeah, so the piece we're talking about today is uh, research that I've done on unclaimed retirement accounts. Um, so this project actually had quite a long evolution. I was working on it for a while on my own, um, and then with a professor here, Karina Momayertz. Um, and so we were looking at state unclaimed property databases and sort of working on that project. Um, and then later, I think, realized that we really needed some other data to complete the project and build out the story. And so actually through a discussant, um, Damon Jones got connected with Lucas Goodman and Shanti Ramnath, my eventual co-authors on this, um, there at the Chicago Fed and the U.S. Treasury. And so I think being with them is really what completed the research. But what motivated it? You know, in economics, I think we tend to take on maybe two to three projects max a year. At least that's what I do. And so it's not like I have, you know, 80 different things moving at any given point. Um, this is a question I was really interested in, like how people deal with the fragmented retirement accounts 
later in life, right? Every job you take, you get a new little account. What happens to these? Um, I was really interested in this question. And so I think really stayed with it through the evolution of, you know, different co-authors, finding the right data sets, um, finding eventually this uh, Shanti and Lucas who had worked on it um, in their government office uh, job for some time. And it was a really good uh, collaboration um, when, when we all got together. I'm so curious to learn more about um, about your findings here. But before we get into that, I'm curious if you want to review any constraints or limitations that your research piece may have. Sure. No, this is great, I think, to lead with, right? Um, I mean, there's many, right? So one is, I think, a lot of this research on abandoned retirement accounts or unclaimed retirement money, it's motivated by our government's whole move to a defined contribution system as opposed to a defined benefit system. And I say government, but it's really the entire employment sector, right, has changed from pensions to defined contributions. And so in a way, even though this change has been around for a long time, we haven't really seen a lot of those cohorts who've been exposed to defined contribution their entire life. Um, we haven't seen them retire yet that much, right? So a lot of people still have a mix of pension and, and defined contribution just because it's been in the last you know, several decades. And so I would say one limitation is that we're really looking in this paper at maybe some of the first cohorts retiring with a full defined contribution history. And you might think that for people who are new to this kind of way of saving, that maybe it's harder for them. Um, it's not totally clear to me actually which way it goes. Like I, I think we always anticipate that people who are younger and more used to these things will be savvier, but but you also get so much more information overload. Like I think each of us has a million accounts for a million and one things. And it's sometimes maybe even harder to keep track um, as generations kind of progress, but it's it's not clear. But, but all to say that's one constraint. Like we're looking at maybe the first set of cohorts exposed to a fully defined contribution system. I think another big constraint, and this is one that maybe sort of help, uh, makes us underestimate the extent of abandonment in a big way is that the data allows us to look into individual retirement accounts, um, which are accounts that which an individual, let's say you have a 401k or a 403b with your employer, at some point, you can roll that over to an individual retirement account. Um, and so we're looking at the abandonment, meaning the unclaimed IRAs. We think that a lot more money is actually just left completely unclaimed in the original 401k or 403b accounts, um, but that database, as far as we know, does not exist, right? So it's basically a very disaggregated system that stays with the different plans that manage these different accounts. Um, so we were only able to look at, I mean, I say only, but really it was quite incredible because of my co-author Lucas Goodman and, and Shanti Ramnath, what we were able to look at, they, um, because they work in government, they had access to all the IRS tax records. And so we were able to look at all tax records um, for really the entire population, but we were looking there at IRA accounts um, in particular. So I'm curious, um, given that, that the database doesn't really exist, um, what indications did you did you find that leads you to believe that a lot is left in a 403b, 401k, so on and so forth, and not just the IRA part of it? So, so the indication that we find in the data set is that we do have information on unclaimed property. Um, so this is individual level data that we got from different states, um, basically wrote to all states in the U.S. and 18 of them got back to us with information on the breakdown of unclaimed property. And within that, we can see sometimes when it's a 401k, for example, that ends up in unclaimed property. And now 
we we do see quite a lot of density. I think 40% of the retirement accounts that are unclaimed in those databases are 401ks. So that's why we think that, okay, they're showing up an unclaimed property. We don't have a good administrative database for it overall, um, but it suggests that there's probably quite a lot left behind in employer plans um, that we just can't see. So I guess, yeah, the next big question is, what did your research find? What are the main findings? Yeah, so so like I was saying, the, the motivation for this work is that people are now retiring with more and more retirement accounts, right? It could be, I think the Department of Labor now estimates that people have about 12 jobs prior to retirement. Um, so you could have a, your money pocketed away in a very fragmented way. And the question is whether people access and use their own savings in retirement, right? So there's a legal kind of obligation to do so. And the reason is because this money grows and is set aside tax deferred. And so the idea is that at some point you need to be withdrawing this money and then paying taxes on it. Um, so there are government rules are called required minimum distributions, which over the span of our study um, start at age 72 and a half, where you need to start taking the money out of what you've saved and, and spend it and pay taxes on it. And our question was how many people fail to meet their required minimum distributions, right? So there could be a couple of reasons for doing so. It could be that maybe you're intentionally not taking it because maybe you want to risk a penalty or you want to just bequeath it somehow to your um, children or next of kin or something. Um, but very likely you maybe don't know where all your retirement money sits and that's why you're not meeting it, even if you're withdrawing some money somewhere else. And so what we looked at using tax data is seeing how many people are failing to meet their required minimum distribution. And you can define this in many ways, right? So you have to start doing it at age 72 and a half. Maybe you missed meeting these RMDs for three years, maybe for 10 years, maybe longer. And so what we find is that over a three-year span, at least 3% of Americans held at least one unclaimed account. So to us, that was quite large. When we look out to 10 years, we see that it drops to about half a percent of people. So people do kind of remember and end up claiming these older accounts, but it still not, doesn't go to zero. And then we look at how much money is left behind in these accounts. At the three-year mark, um, the median is about $10,000. At the 10-year mark, it's about $5,000. So that's the median amount left behind. But when we look at the third quartile, it's actually like, I think, $25,000 for the three-year number and similar for the 10-year number, meaning that there are some pretty large accounts, um, even when we look at it as a percent of income, that are just not ever uh, taken out. And so we start to then wonder in the paper, why would that be? Right. And so then we look at lots of different reasons. We look at, for example, measures of financial sophistication, like do you have investment income? Do you file tax returns? We look at your zip code because that can dictate the type of plan that you have, how kind of generous they are and trying to find you, even though maybe all you gave them was your last known address, things like that. And we find quite a lot of variation by that, right? So people who are more financially sophisticated or are lucky to live in sort of certain zip codes do seem to have lower abandonment rates. Um, another big thing that we looked at in the paper that we find kind of interesting is we looked at this rule um, by which 
employees leaving a job where they leave behind between one and $5,000 of money end up in a specialized default account, right? So the money is considered to be too little to be cashed out, but also too, sorry, too much to be cashed out, but too little to be staying with the employer plan. So what happens with these accounts that are between one and $5,000 is that they end up in a what's called an automatic rollover IRA or a forced transfer IRA. So ideally the employee rolls that money over into their next job or something or into their own IRA, but if they don't do anything, it goes into this other specialized IRA. And that type of IRA, um, we find an abandonment rate that's nearly 10 times higher. So it started to get us thinking that maybe with all the sort of increase in default enrollment of people into retirement benefits, like clearly this has many good things, like people end up saving more um, and maybe maybe in a way that they don't intend to, right? Because it's passive, like it's just taken out of your paycheck before you even think about it, right? You're automatically put into these plans. But maybe one downside is that if you never knew that you were in a retirement plan, you don't know to go looking for that money later. Um, and so this is something that we think is really important because, you know, it's sort of different from not claiming unemployment insurance or, or Medicaid or something like that. It's, it's not claiming your own money, right? It's a paycheck deduction. Like you would have just gotten more money in your paycheck had you not been in this plan. And so if your own money is sort of just sort of getting lost through these retirement plans, we view that to be something to call attention to and really think hard about um, minimizing. So those were sort of the main findings from the paper. Um, we also looked at state unclaimed property databases and associated rules. So actually, you know, you and I are in Wisconsin and Wisconsin has this great rule where if they get unclaimed property, they actually, if you file taxes in the state in the previous, I think, year, they just automatically send you that money. You don't have to do anything. They already know your address. They know where you filed from, so they just send it to you. Um, so Wisconsin has quite a high reunion rate of unclaimed mm. money with with, yeah. uh, with I owners. imagine that varies state to state it quite does. a bit. And so yeah. most states don't have such an automatic process. Here, I think it's enabled because the unclaimed property sits within um, kind of the Department of Tax, right? So, so I think they tend to share that information. But in most states, it's within the Department of Treasury is where unclaimed um, money sits. And so it's harder to sort of link it with the social security numbers and, and send checks out to people. But even then, like we find that we estimate that not all plans are really sending unclaimed money over to the unclaimed databases because it's sort of um, unclear what the requirements are to do so. Um, so the money is just sort of staying behind in these plans. People may have moved many times. I think the plans don't really know where you are, so they're not able to remind you. Um, people may have forgotten about them or never known about them. It could even be, I mean, in our case, I think we we minimize this this likelihood by looking at younger ages in a way, but, but it could be for older ages, um, a lot of widows maybe who are unaware of spousal benefits they're entitled to. So there's just sort of a lot of retirement benefits that appear to be not connected with their owners later in life. Now, I think taking a step back, the comforting thing is that the vast, vast majority of retirement benefits do, in fact, go to their owners, right? So we're not saying this is such a big crisis that, you know, all this money is disappearing. Absolutely, that's not the case. Um, but enough of it is and enough of it among the more vulnerable populations where we see lower financial literacy, maybe more jobs over the lifetime, things like that, where we think, um, you know, we need to do a little bit better 
in, in both in understanding, but also then in terms of uh, potentially correcting um, this problem of abandoned accounts. Now that you've done this, we've got these findings. Um, now what? All right. So you found <laughs> this. What are the implications maybe for practice or for policy or otherwise? Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, with policy, it's a little bit uh, and there's been a lot of changes. I think there's this new you know, regulation around retirement accounts. So I think uh, there's a lot of effort to try and I think minimize abandonment and to make it easier. Um, but I think practically on, on a financial advice kind of perspective, I think people should maybe not procrastinate on consolidating their retirement accounts, right? So retirement accounts is sort of something that by nature, you know, the title of our paper is set it and forget it, right? You're supposed to put it and just not think about it until you're a lot older. And that may work well for many people, but I think many plans change hands, employers go out of business, like it can get tricky to find your old retirement accounts if you haven't, if you really just do plan to set it and forget it for maybe many decades. Um, now, so, so maybe one takeaway is that people should at least keep track. And then if it's not unreasonable from a financial perspective, also maybe consolidate retirement accounts as they progress through their careers, right? Um, roll over money into the new employer, roll things over into an IRA. Um, now, there could be reasons why people don't do that, right? You like it to be managed by your former plan. And so it's not like a blanket advice, but I think when possible, at least kind of keeping track of all the savings um, is important. And I think, you know, the reason I think this is especially important is because, you know, at job change, there's so many things going through your head, right? Like you're you're potentially certainly moving employers probably, but also maybe moving locations, maybe moving health um, networks, health insurance networks, things like that. And retirement accounts, I think um, people tend to procrastinate on. And so, you know, because you could deal with yeah. it later. Um, but as long as that later, and because there's no deadline, you know, you can, it's easy to procrastinate on it uh, maybe for too long. So that might be one takeaway. Another, I think, takeaway, and this is something actually Michael Collins mentioned, um, a professor here at Wisconsin, um, when he saw our work, is that maybe we should um, increase the cash out, the tax-free cash out um, at uh, job transitions. Um, so right now, I think less than a thousand, I mean, you basically pay a 20% early withdrawal fee mm -hmm. if you want to cash out your retirement benefits between jobs. But maybe if that ends up in a lot of people keeping these like small balances with um, previous employers, maybe we should allow people to take that money out tax free. I mean, it has a big disadvantage that that money doesn't make it to retirement. But on the other hand, at least it stays with the individual. So I think it's something to think about um, whether we want to encourage um, cash outs, at least as an option for people um, when they're switching jobs. Um, I think from a policy perspective, you know, we need to think maybe a little bit more about what plans should do, right? There's not a lot of explicit legal obligation or guidance that they have on how to locate uh, account owners who seem to be um, sort of dormant or owners of dormant accounts. I think the the main thing that they do is they send you mail to your last known address. Um, you know, better plans or more resource plans might also Google you and try to find you. Um, but really, you know, your last known address is very likely to not be a good way to find you. Um, so really trying to figure out maybe we should be giving more contact information, maybe encouraging online portals that, that are sort of um, stay with you more easily across your life. Um, things like that could be good ways to mm -hmm. at least mitigate the reliance on physical addresses and phone numbers as a means to 
reach out to people. Um, I think not everybody actually sets up an online account and, you know, not to add more accounts, right? That's a separate issue, I think, on the hassle costs of financial management. But on the other hand, potentially a very important thing to do to sort of keep track of your own savings. Yeah, thanks for that answer. Um, well, I think that's that wraps us up just about. The only question we have left is if our listeners would like to learn more about this research or other pieces of research you completed, how can they find it? Where would you direct them? Yeah, I mean, so this particular paper, I mean, so this was uh, published in the Journal of Financial Economics, um, but a preprint is available on my website if people don't have access to that journal. Um, so that's just anitamukherjee.com or they can go to my official university website and, and find a link there. Other than that, I think that's it. Thanks so much for your time today, Anita. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. This was really fun. Please follow our podcast on your podcast app to remain updated on the latest work from the UW-Madison Retirement and Disability Research Center. You can also visit our center on the web at cfsrdrc.wisc.edu. There, you'll find our latest news, publications, and webinars. Until our next episode, let's all keep doing our best to support equity and financial security.